This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 5.11 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 5.11tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, 
you will get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 518 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Ricardo Roman. Now, Rick is a veteran of FDNY and is also the man behind the FDNY Barbell Club. So we discuss a host of topics from his journey through the fire service, how he found CrossFit, strength and conditioning within the tactical space, competition, and so much more. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it more and more visible for others to find. And this is a free library of over 500 episodes. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Ricardo Roman. Enjoy. All right. Well, Rick, I want to start by saying welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. Wow. Thanks for having me, James. So where on planet Earth are we finding you today? I am currently in sunny side Queens in my apartment at home. Beautiful. So as you know, because we did this once before and we're doing it again because uh, the date of the event that we're going to talk about later has changed and uh you know, there's some other other areas that we didn't touch, so we want to make sure that we did it again in a more updated version. Um, so, I like to start at the very beginning. So, tell me where you were born, and then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did, and how many siblings. Um, I was born in Manhattan, in Harlem Hospital, in 1981. Um, I was raised uh, primarily by my mom. Um, my dad didn't. Uh, come into the mix until uh, I was five or six. Um, my mom's been a uh, legal secretary, um, I mean, for as long as I could know, I mean, well over, well over 20, 25 years. Um, she's been super successful at that. Uh, I mean, only having a high school diploma and still being able to achieve what she has, uh, it's, it's remarkable. And my dad, um, he was, uh, he's, he sells health insurance. Um, uh, primarily, and then he lost that job, and now he works uh, gaining people employment that are unemployed. And I have a younger, younger uh, brother, many years younger. He's fourteen years younger, and an older sister who's just a couple years older than me. Brilliant. Now, with your dad coming into your life when you were five, my my previous wife, her dad walked out of their lives when she was five to start a new family. Um, you know. The, the absolute opposite of what I think a man is. Um, so your dad came into, so kind of what was the backstory of, of, of him, you know, going the other way of coming back into your life and then, and then being present after that? Um, so my mom and my dad, they, they had, they had kids pretty young and, um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's one of those stories where they were a young couple and I think, uh, my dad was going through some struggles um, himself with uh, 
some, some drugs and alcohol. And um, at the end of the day, they weren't getting along. But uh, I think uh, what they tried to do in hindsight now, years later, uh, I think they they were both trying to trying to raise a family and trying to get back together with the hopes of uh, you know raising uh, my sister and I um, together. Um, they held on to that for a while. Um, and, and while I was in college, they actually split up. Um, I was, like I said before, James, uh, to you last time, I think, uh, they're probably, uh, two, two good people, just not together. Yeah, no, but that's, that's really great to hear though. You know, that they, they had you and then, you know, he, he dealt with some things and then came back and, and raised you. And like you said, my, I'm, I'm divorced, you know, I, uh, I have no regrets on my marriage. I have an amazing little boy. But again, we weren't supposed to be together either. So that's very cool to hear. Um, so when people t- think of Harlem, everyone has kind of different ideas. As an Englishman, when I first came over to America and uh, worked on summer camps, we would stay in um, uh, Columbia University on Amsterdam. And they, wow. they were like, oh, you know, whatever you do, don't turn, don't turn left. You're going to find yourself in Harlem. So, you know, it can be painted in a m- number of ways. What was Harlem like during your childhood? Man, oddly enough, James, uh, that you mentioned Columbia, I actually grew up um, on 135th Street and Broadway in Manhattan, which is uh, maybe 15 blocks from Columbia University, maybe a mile. Um, growing up in the 80s, uh, early 90s. Uh, yeah, it wasn't the best neighborhood. It was, it was riddled with um, primarily drugs, and, and there was some crime. And uh, I think uh, growing up um, in that dynamic at home, um, my mom tried her best to like uh, keep us um, keep us busy, either at school or after school programs, or in the summer, going away to camps. But uh, it was a tough it was a tough upbringing because. I think her growing up in that dynamic, what she tried to do in hindsight was try to like control the environment that we were in as much as she could um, so that we didn't, you know, go along the wrong path. A lot of the guys that I grew up with in my neighborhood at the same time, they've they've hadn't had as much success as I have. I, If I had to look back now, um, you know, I'm probably one of the few people that was able to to carry on uh, another kid I grew up with to, he used the military to kind of get out but uh, it, it was tough man it was a tough dynamic in the environment that you were in in Harlem at the time now so what was it you think that uh, allowed you know not allowed you that, that that empowered you to find a path to to a profession that's doing good in the world when there were some of the negative influences that were pulling some of the young men and women the opposite way uh, obviously I, I think a lot of the credit I, I give to my mom, um, she was, she's been a, a positive force, but she also, um, the way she led, you know, us was, it was a lot through, uh, in hindsight, it was a lot through fear. You know, my mom wasn't, you know, she believed in corporal punishment. She believed in, um, if you did something wrong, you know, she was going to take things away from you or, you know. Like I said before, you know, she smacked you around to try to keep you in line. I think, uh, you know, that kept us on the straight and narrow. And, uh, you know, after a while, when you grow up and you start to see and you come wise to the world, you know, you don't you don't want to kind of be in the situation that you're in or you don't want that for yourself. So, um, you know, as soon as I got an opportunity to make my path, you know, like everybody else, you know, everybody preaches, you know, go away to college and 
try to set yourself up, that was that was the goal. But a lot of the credit I give to my mom primarily, and my, and my dad as well, but, you know, she was the driving force. You know, she had a plan of how she was going to raise her kids, and, and I, you know, I think she's done a hell of a job. Yeah, I agree. Now, what about the fire service? Were you exposed to any local firefighters in your neighborhood? Nah, growing up, uh, James, um, I didn't really see a lot of the fire department in my area. I was primarily exposed to PD. You know, PD was visible. Um, the fire department wasn't as visible to me. Uh, the, the way I got exposed to it uh, really was um, in college. Um, my freshman year of college roommate, this kid named Jay Reed, um, we kind of kept in touch all the way through college. And uh, my senior year, he, uh, you know, pulled me aside when I was in the hallways on the way to wherever I was going and kind of brought to my attention, you know, the idea of becoming a fireman and explaining, um, you know, the benefits of it, the camaraderie. Um, I'm, I've always been big into working out. You know, he, he lends it to the fact that, you know, you can do that while you're at work. You know, you can have that as a career and. You know, I had a couple years playing college baseball. And I had kind of missed the uh, the team aspect of it. And to have a job that kind of was lending towards that kind of uh, environment, I, I kind of wanted to be involved in it. But growing up, I didn't have a lot of exposure to it, James. So you touched on, on playing baseball. Going back in, even further, you said your mom was putting you in, in, in programs and sports. Um, what were some of the things that you were playing in the school age? Um. Growing up, oddly enough, my mom was a coach for a PAL league. Um, I wasn't on her team, but she was uh, one of the coaches for the baseball program that we had in uh, the New York City PAL leagues. Um, always played outside, um, you know, football. I had dreams of always wanting to be, you know, NFL quarterback, but I was just too small. Um, and then as I growed up, um, and I got my exposure in high school. My first couple years, I played, you know, organized uh, football. Um, it was a great experience. I met my uh, my best man, my best friend in the world. Um, this kid, Mike Coronado, who's a doctor out in uh, Boston now. Um, and that, that was a cool experience. Um, just the fact of seeing uh, the idea of you know, going to work uh, during the week and then seeing it come to fruition on Saturday. Um, and then he's the same kid uh, who kind of put me in exposure to more like trying to become a high school baseball player. And uh, oddly enough, I never played in high school. I tried out a couple times. I never got picked up. I played summer baseball with him as well. Um, and I, I knew I was a pretty good athlete. I felt Growing up at Mount St. Michael Academy at the time where I went to school, there was there was a little bit of a dynamic, James, where the head coach um, had his son playing the position that I wanted to play. So I, I wasn't picked up on the team, but I, I, I never gave up the dream of wanting to be uh, uh, a baseball player and playing in college. Um, so I just kept playing summer ball. I was a catcher. And then I went on to Sacred Heart University in uh, Connecticut, and I uh, I ended up walking on to a D1 school. So it kind of solidified the fact that I was I was good enough to play, but I just caught a raw deal in the wrong place at the wrong time, the whole coach and son dynamic. But uh, I played at Sacred Heart for a couple of years, and then they ended up bringing in some stud kid, and I, I knew it was 
for me, being in college and being young, starting to get exposure to party life and um, having a social life, I knew I wasn't going to play a lot. And the, the amount of time and dedication it took, I, I didn't want to commit to that. So I only, only ended up playing a couple of years. And then I also, in high school, in order to get my arms stronger, because I want, you know, being a catcher, you want to have a strong arm to throw people out. If they try to steal bases, I, I threw javelin. And another reason why I threw javelin is because my good buddy Mike that I mentioned before, he was a shot putter. So kind of the whole time through through high school, we always did sports together. Um, maybe that's why we have the friendship we have today. See, that's amazing. I've never heard anyone say they did javelin to improve their baseball. Yeah, it was it was one of those things where I knew if me if me having an opportunity, I didn't enjoy the aspect of track to run. But there was, you know, you could, you know, the throwing sports, the discus, the shot put and the javelin. And it had kind of like the same motion of me rearing back and throwing the baseball. So I was like, man, let me just do this to keep busy. A lot of that was because I didn't want to go home, you know, just because the shit that my mom and, and dad were going through it. So I just tried to delay as much as me getting home um, as late as possible. So I tried to stay involved in the way I could, you know chalk up another sport was do track and, and throw javelin so that's what i did yeah now you said that the police were were you know present in your neighborhood i had a guy on um, pat russo who is one of the founders of the new york cops and kids boxing club that they have in there but the importance of mentorship yes you know pd can be visible in a negative way but they can also be visible in a, in a positive way and you mentioned i said the police athletic league what impact did that have on you? And did you find any mentors within that organization? No, it was it was pretty young. I was pretty young when I was involved in the PAL. But oddly enough, I played in a league in the Bronx um, during my high school years. It was a summer league. And the coaches at the time of my team were cops. And uh, they were involved in like doing community service. Um, and that's some of the things that they did. And uh, I still remember those guys to this day, always being available, always being there. Um, anytime you needed something, they weren't shy to let you know, hey, you can lean on me. So um, it kind of it kind of was the good side or the good story of what you hear of what a cop is. Um, so much of the other stuff that's, that's thrown out in the media, it's it's all all bad. But, you know, my exposure growing up with them. They were they were great guys and they, and they they took the time out to help us out and teach us the sport and um, I'm grateful to this day that those guys were around. Beautiful. So you had your friend in college that you know kind of introduced you to the concept of becoming a firefighter. What was that journey like for you to the Rock? Yeah, it was it was it was crazy uh, looking back at it, James. Now, I mean, so. Come to find, I find out that there's going to be an exam given. My exam was 2043. It was offered in December of 02, and I was a senior at the time. So what we decided to do, me and this kid Jay, was uh, during the fall semester, we ended up buying like a Red uh, Barons book. And I don't know if you remember those, but they were like firefighter exams. I do. Yeah, so uh, what we ended up doing was we studied that. Um, we took time out during the week, and we'd um, take the practice exams, just kind of study the idea of what we were going to see um, for the written. So I did that all the way through until um, the test came. And then uh, I remember showing up for my exam date in, uh, in the Bronx. 
because um, that's where mine was supposed to be based on where I lived. And uh, I took the written um, and I, I thought it was difficult. I thought there was there was there was a moment. I don't know about uh, your exam, James, for your departments. But one thing I remember about my written exam is there was a memory um, portion of it. And you, you saw a photo and you got this picture of the photo. You were allowed to study it for 10 minutes. Then they pulled it away from you. And then you had 10 minutes where nothing was going on. And then the exam began. And uh, that was that was a tough part. Um, I thought the I thought the exam went well for me. And then oddly enough, I did score really well. Um, but my buddy Jay didn't. And uh, based on how he scored and the, the amount of people that took the test, he knew that he wasn't going to continue on. Um, so after that, I ended up getting a list number. And then with my list number, um, I had to prep for the physical at the time I was, I was very much, um, in the gym all the time. Um, just cause I was trying to keep busy. Um, I was a human movement exercise science student at Sacred Heart. So it was a big part of my program and <clears throat> I always was working out. And I think a lot of that was because I wasn't involved with college baseball anymore. Um, so I just always was in the facility working out. Part of me still missed it, but, um, at the time I was a bodybuilder, but Jay, had let me know that there was going to be a Stairmaster involved in the CPAP portion. So what I did for that leading up to the physical was I bought a vest uh, at the beginning of my December break. And I lived on the 19th floor um, of my apartment building. And I, I just climbed stairs all the time just because, uh, you know, I found it was I was having a rough time with my lungs, like opening up against something that was weighted on top of me. So I was doing that a lot. And I kind of figured looking at CPAT at the time, James, when you were a candidate, you were allowed to go to the rock and get like a walkthrough. I went to the walkthrough and I kind of got an idea of what <clears throat> what was going to be involved with CPAT. And what I can remember was I, I thought I'd be able to do well just on the strength portions. I was already pretty strong. Um, but the Stairmaster, I was worried about. And the there was a portion where you had to go through a tunnel. And it kind of in the tunnel, the, the space got got closer and you kind of lost your visual. It was it was a new way of like I, I wasn't exposed to something like that. So it was kind of it was kind of new. It was not scary, but just a new element I never dealt with. But the one thing I was focusing on, James, was the fact that I had to do a step a second for 312 seconds and I couldn't have a hit. I couldn't touch the banister. So I was I was on the Stairmaster all the time, man all the time for the physical portion and then ended up getting a hundred on that. And what they did at the time, they took the hundred that you had on the physical and then your written score. And I, I did really well. And then I ended up getting a list number and my list number was uh number 1947. So I kind of knew at that time, like, Hey, you know, me picking up the phone, talking to the investigator, there was a good shot that I would get called, but it was going to be years to come. So, I just held out hope, man, at that time. That was the whole lead up to me getting the academy. It was just, that was the whole process. So one thing that really stands out with your journey is your preparation. You know, you took the written seriously, you took the, the physical seriously. And that's something I think I talked with um, um, Felix about and, you know, some other people is the the CPATs, in, in my opinion, for someone who's 
wanting to become a firefighter, you know, that's you're trying to do well on the CPAT. And what breaks my heart is when I people I see people like, you know, high fiving because they got 10, 19 and, you know, just scrape through. And one of the areas that I saw crush, you know, very, very seemingly fit people was just what you said. It was was the stairmaster and just learning about the test and truly taking it seriously and truly preparing for it. And the same with the written. Those are the two areas that we can control. We can't control if our investigator likes us. They may not find anything, but they might still be an a-hole and put us lower on the list. We can't control, you know, an interview panel if they like us, even if we, you know, give good answers. But the, the written and the physical are both in our control. So what, what gave you, gave you that kind of mindset that you took both of those things seriously? Was it the fact that the list, you know, uh, the the opportunity doesn't come very often in FDMY? Yeah, I mean, you mentioned that. That's one of them because they uh, currently the way it works with the city, um, particularly with the fire department exams, it's, it's only offered every four years. Um, <clears throat> the thing I knew that the whole way it was going to play out was – the best the best opportunity I was going to give myself is just like you said, I had to, I had to do as well as I could to go against every other candidate that was trying to get the job. And to be honest, I was at a time in my life being so young. Um, I, I knew I was in school for a degree. Right. But I didn't know really what my next step was going to be. And this kind of gave me an idea of something that I could do. Um, for a career, you know, in my mind, if, with, with my degree, what I was going to do is probably um, be a personal trainer or a strength coach for a team. And But this opportunity of getting on the job and becoming a firefighter, the prestige that comes with it, you know, um, that's one thing. But it, it was going to allow me to have a career. And if I had gotten on young, you know, I'd be able to retire young. You know, me speaking to my mom and um, speaking to my uncles and uh, other people in my family, you know, I knew what they were going through and I knew how long you had to, to be in a job in order to retire. And I, I didn't want to retire late. But this this idea of getting this career, it was going to give me an opportunity to retire early, earn some decent amount of money. And then, um, you know, like I said before, I think there was some prestige that comes with being a fireman. I think, you know, you're revered in the community as somebody that helps out. And I wanted to be a part of that, man. Yeah. So you were studying, you know, human performance in school. I did ex-phys in, in London and then finished it here in Florida years later. Um, awesome. what, what was your perspective of that now looking back? My personal one was I, I love the NSCA courses. I love some of the CrossFit courses and, you know, learned so much in a, in a relatively small amount of time. When I look at some of the academic side, I felt like, Sometimes the studies were were very myopic, very you know, focusing on my minutia. Come on, I'm trying to say the minutia. There's the word um, of some of these principles, rather than taking that time to to give uh, a student the tools to really go out there and be a trainer, be a coach, be you know to to be employable. But I found it very very academic. What was your perspective of the course that you were in? I got I got I got to agree with you completely James in terms of uh in hindsight my degree uh you know me attaining a human movement exercise science degree um I, I feel like there wasn't enough application of what we were learning at the academic level in a college atmosphere 
um, you know, being in a class and learning a subject, but really having a true understanding of how to apply it is two completely different things. Um, maybe, maybe the school system is lacking in that way at the, at the college level, but a lot of where I'm at now, knowing what I know, um, being a, a college grad in the subject, um, I've learned so much more from application of uh, being a physical therapy assistant, going through stuff of seeing how the body repairs post-op or being around college students who are preparing um, at Fordham University with the football team of how they prepare for, you know, in-season, post-season. Um, and then being involved in um, getting exposed to CrossFit, I think, man, you could learn more at the level one. You know, if you've taken a level one, then what you can get from an A and P class and then, you know, hitting the meat of your subject on your senior year at school. I mean, it, I don't know if I'm, I'm making any sense, but it's not enough. You know what I mean? It's not enough at the academic level. They should be doing a, a better job of maybe all subjects of giving exposure more, not the quote unquote internship that you're going to do the one for three credits. Maybe it should be more involved of like hands on. So you can get true exposure and then you can create a better knowledge base of how to, um, you know, get the body prepared for whatever it is, whether it be a fireman or prepare for sport or just to be physically fit in general. Yeah, no, I agree completely. So you you made the list, you know, it was going to be a while. Um, what were you doing in the meantime? And then talk to me when about that, you know, that moment when you actually got offered the position. So I got out of school. And I was I had my list number, which was 1947. And I think at the time for 2043, I think 47,000 had taken it. So um, I knew at the academy they were doing maybe 200 a clip, maybe 300 a clip based on the needs of the fire department. So I had to wait. So I had to get a job and uh, I ended up working as a personal trainer for this company in the city called Plus One Fitness. And uh, I was working a couple years for them. Then I moved on and became a physical therapy assistant. And uh, I was doing some personal training at the time. But in the back of my mind, there was like two things that were like I was struggling with. I, I had wanted to join the military, but I was fearful of the fact like, hey, if they call, what's going to happen with, the, uh, with my list number or what's going to happen with that opportunity to get on the job? So the whole time I just kept working and working um, kind of in my kind of like my field that I went to school for. But all the whole time I was just in hopes of getting a call. And I, I uh, oddly enough, in the fall of 2005, um, I finally was able to, uh, you know, check all the boxes with my investigator. Um, got a crazy story with with the investigator. We'll talk about it later if you want. But uh they were going to let me know that I was going to go in um, April of 06. So it took me almost a little over four years just to wait. But like I said, I wanted the job. So I ended up um, getting hired April of 06. Well, let's hear the story of the investigator right now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so Crazy story. My investigator at the time, I forgot the guy's name. I don't even care about the guy because he was um, thinking me over. But um I had checked all the boxes. There was a little red flag that I had, James. Uh, it sucks for me to talk about it, but you know what? It's real. Um, when I had gotten out of college, um, 
at the time that I was working in my first job, I ended up getting um, in trouble with the law. You know, I I, uh, I got caught uh, purchasing some marijuana, and uh, I had you know I had to get locked up for it. So, in the process of my investigation, that had came up that um, you know I had a drug prior. So what they told me at the time was that I was going to have to visit the psych, get the stamp of approval from that person, and then um, see where we go from there. So I ended up getting an interview with a psychologist. Um, the interview went well based on my written um, psych. Um, they asked me about what happened. I was forthright. I told them. You know, they had all the information on their end, so I didn't want to lie. Um, so the lady told me at the time, you know, you were a very, very worthy candidate. Um, just realized that we're going to have to put you on a drug stipulation if we hire you of uh, three years. So, you know, I was I was willing to do it because I wanted a job. So I had checked that box. But come to my investigator, this 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 uh, he was actually in hindsight, it looked like he was you know, a real jerk off towards me. Um, the next thing that he was he was saying that was stopping me from getting hired um, was that I didn't have enough uh, recommendations. At the time, I was a physical therapy assistant at um, this place in Brooklyn. And oddly enough, um, there was a guy who was a state senator. His name was Marty Golden, who was actually a patient of mine. And uh, the time that I was with him was like for a half a year. Um, you know, we ended up becoming good buddies. He was actually a cop in the city. I told him about what was going on with the investigator. And he ended up giving me um, a pretty solid recommendation based on my time with him at the clinic. So now I hand that into this guy, James. But now um, that's not enough. He's starting to say as this is going on that he's not getting my uh, college transcript, that he's not getting it. So I'm missing classes at the academy because this person's saying this one piece of information that's I need in order to get the final stamp of approval. He's not getting. So twice I send it. He says he doesn't get it. Classes are rolling through. And thank God. I had spoken to my mom. My mom ended up saying, hey, don't what you need to do is FedEx tag it with uh, to make sure that there was a receipt that was received by the sender. So come to find I sent it that way through FedEx. This guy says he doesn't receive it. And then I just, you know, I checkmated him right there. I'm like, bro, there's a thing that says right here. You guys received it on this date. Um, Then we, you know, we had a, you know. It was, it was it sucked that we caught this guy who was the investigator for the FDNY and, and this lie. And, then, you know, we ended up following through on it. And then, uh, you know, I ended up, you know, getting my shot and then going into the academy for a while. It was, it was getting hairy, man, because this guy didn't know me, but it seemed like he had a hard on for me. So it's it sucked going in, um, knowing that that was, you know, part of the deal. But oddly enough, James, you know, me being at 74 engine, when I got on the job, where I got assigned, the Manhattan trustee um, was um, at my firehouse, this guy, Dan Murphy. And years later, when they were going through um, with the court case that had went on and how everything transpired, he would come back to the firehouse in the kitchen and talk about instances of the stuff that I had went through. And it was just, you know, I'd be in the kitchen just shaking my head like, you know, all these years in the back of my mind, I knew that this was going down. And then here is the Manhattan trustee fireman for us, you know, union guy saying, yo, guys, I'm in the meetings. There's people saying that this is going down. And then oddly enough, you know, 
that court case ends up being what it's being. But some of it good, some of it bad, but uh, some of the stuff was valid, man. Yeah, well, let's talk about the the court case. Walk me through it because I think, um, you know, with with the whole diversity issue, everyone gets kind of hypersensitive. But the reality is there are departments out there that have excluded certain groups, whatever color creed, you know, whatever it is, um, for a while. And then on the other side of the coin is there are departments that then in knee-jerk go out shopping for whatever ethnicity or sex um, that they want to fill, which also creates its own problems. So if you want to walk me through the case first, and then I'd love to explore that a little bit more. So the, the court case in question um, with the fire department um, was brought to by an, an organization um, in the fire department, two organizations, primarily by the Vulcans which is the Af- African-American group. And then uh, the Hispanic society ended up jumping in with them. But uh, they had found that there was hiring practices that they thought were um, not not on the level. So that was the premise of the court case. And it was uh, it ended up being posed to a, a judge in Brooklyn. I forgot the guy's name. I think it's Garufus. But what they ended up saying was there was two exams uh, 7029 and the exam I took 2043 that the content of the exam um, was skewed. Now me being a candidate that uh, was a part of 2043, I had felt that um, you know if you studied, uh, if you you know took the time to, to you know look at the exam and know what was going to be thrown at you, you had a side of being successful, but this judge um, ended up, you know, um, with his uh, his legal team finding that the two exams in question had a bias. And what they ended up doing was uh, after they made their judgment, there was a, a monetary um, value that was given to candidates who were um, of ethnic uh, groups. For both exams, you were either given some money or you were given some time back that uh, um, you were owed based on how you scored. And then um, people that were left behind, they were allowed to be hired. But but it's crazy, James, going through it, man, because uh, when there was uh, the whole court case ended up getting chopped up and and everything was delved out. Um, it was weird because I was a. I'm a Hispanic guy on the fire department. Like I knew that there was stuff that that wasn't good um, being the stuff that I had went through on the job myself, uh, just dealing with stuff that you knew had like racial tone to it. Um, but I was also on the side of like, man, it's a good job, but there's definitely some stuff that's going on. So this is probably needed in order to make a push to go um, the other way, you know, because there, there was there was some instances with the FDNY, me going through it, oddly enough, on my end, like there, there had to be other stories that were that were just just weren't on the level. But, you know, it's still a great job. Um, the guys I've worked with have been awesome um, for the most part. And um, it sucks, like I said, to be, be part of that exam, have um, studied and did well. But I knew it, it probably that probably needed to happen to push the fire department forward for minority groups and women. 
Yeah. Well, and it's it's interesting. I had uh, Al Benjamin on the the show Rescue One, who is a freaking phenom. I love that guy. We were actually just chatting the other day. Um, so I love that guy. But again, you know, he was he was unique in that that element. But you know, again, once he was in that crew, he was out. And that's what I hear from the military, as I hear from fire and police. You know, once it, most people you either can or you can't. That's the real prejudice, you know. But some of these individuals get into these positions where that um, prejudice is allowed to manifest, you know, through an entire department. And I don't think that's how most responders feel. But, you know, there's no question when you look at history that, you know, back in the day, like many professions, there absolutely were prejudices. And if that remnant is still there, then it does need to be, you know, squeezed out and, everyone dragged into 2021 yeah like i like i said before you you probably just hit it on the head that moment of what um the vulcans and spanish society did it it needed to happen in order to continue to push the department forward positively in order to give more opportunity to those groups who weren't getting in you know who weren't um uh, being representative of the city, quote unquote. Um, but like I said, when I got on the firehouse and I was with guys, you know, I, when I when I got to my firehouse, the '74 engine, uh, it was me and one of my one of my best friends on the job, Juan Vargas, and you know the other the other 28 guys were Caucasian. But um, you didn't feel it, you know. Um, there was instances with other you know houses and stuff like that where you, you, you crossed it, but. If you if you knew your job and you did it well and you were a good probie and you followed the firehouse rules and you were committed, you know it was what it was. That stuff wasn't involved and it wasn't in there. Um, yeah. Well, so what I've seen, you know, has has just made the problem worse. Is some places the pendulum swung so far the other way that departments went okay we need 100 black guys we need 12 lesbians we need an englishman we need you know whatever the the shopping list was and rather than go into communities mentor find young men and women who would be great candidates for the fire service law enforcement whatever it is it was just kind of like a blanket dragnet in and in those those groups you had some great people and you had some shitty people the same way as you would with any other group if you just grabbed a bunch of them so what have you seen as far as that element you know still still creating diversity by removing barriers to entry from groups that were excluded before but still making sure that the bar is set and you finding the best firefighter candidates from those groups I, so after the, sort, the court case, I, the, the job had um, come under control of the, the Justice Department in D.C., and they, they tried to create like this influx of recruitment um, to try to get out to the communities, to try to get more people exposed and um, hoping to get on the job. Um, I, don't think they've, I don't think they've done the best uh, job at trying to let them know that you know, uh, being a fireman, you know, you're going to get exposed to, uh, you know, the nature of the job. You got to go into fires and, um, letting people know, Hey man, this, this is goes hand in hand, you know, not just, you know, become a fireman, like, you know, let them know what the deal is. I actually got involved with recruitment and I would try to let people know, 
listen, don't get caught up in the salary and all the other stuff. Like, understand, like, this isn't for everybody. Like, you know, you're going to go to a fire and you're going to get exposed. But I think what the job's done, um, they've had success with it and they haven't had success is that they let people get to that point where, you know, you, you, you get an academy class and you get to the academy. And I think at that point, um, like I'm sure Felix has um, talked to you about it. You know, they try to do their best to figure out who's not um, a viable uh, employee that we want to get through here. You know, like who who do we want to, to, to make it through the firehouse? You know, you, you got to go through motivationality. You got to go through the smokehouse. You got to show proficiency in searches, um, knowing the academics of it, but being able to prove that you can hold the standard so that when you get to the field, you're not going to get other people in jeopardy or you're not going to kill yourself. Cause, um, I think that that sometimes has been brushed aside just to get the numbers, like you said before, but you can't lose the fact that, you know, if you get to a firehouse at any given day or any given shift, you know, you might be put in a jam or you might be put in a spot where people are going to be relying on you, the crew you work with, but also, the civilians of the community, they're going to be expecting help from you. So, I mean, you got to be able to do the job, man. Yeah. Well, I had a very unique perspective being in several fire departments from the East Coast to the West Coast, from really good to really shit <laughs> um, and everything in between. But the common denominator between good crews, good departments was basically the bar being set high. So regardless of whatever background you have, you know, if, if you're held to a high standard, just like you envisioned when you were preparing for your test, you know, you took your, your, your studying seriously. You took your fitness seriously. I did exactly the same as you. I saw it as this is, this, this might be a one time opportunity. So either I go in full force or I don't do it at all. And I think that, you know, when I've seen that high bar set, it ends up creating a great fire department. You have great firefighters, great engineers, great captains, you know, all the way through the ranks. And morale is great. You know, they work out together. They eat together. Of course, there's, you know, there's certain individuals that are less motivated. But when you start bringing that bar down, and I've seen the extreme where the bar was in a trench, you know, the, the ripple effect negatively is horrendous. So just like you said, we have a job where if we screw up, people die. We're not plumbers. We're not carpenters. We're not accountants. And so, you know, we want the best. Of course, we want a complete diverse spectrum that represents the, you know, the the um, communities that we live in. But there are so many great people amongst us. And that's why I think the mentorship programs, whether it's PAL, whether it's the fire mentorship we have here, you go into those communities, you remove barriers of entry, like, you know, um, financial, for example, and you you expose the kids to this is what it's like to be a firefighter. You put them through, through some drills. You put them in gear. You put them through PT. And so they get an idea of either A, this is what I want to do, or B, fuck this. I'm going to go <laughs> go be an accountant. Now I get it. Yeah. I mean, I, I've, I've heard your podcast before, James. And uh, I mean, what sticks with me, you always talk about, uh, you know, the nature of the job. I mean, you speak the truth and. You know, on your emblem and on your uh, decal, it says lives depend on us. And obviously, you know, that that stuck home with you. And that needs to be um, I think that needs to be preached more and more um, to people that who have the hopes of being a fireman or a policeman or being in the military that, to, to have an understanding that there's, there's like complete ownership on 
your ability to do something because, um, you know, at the end of the day, you, you can fall, you can, you can be put in a, in a really, really hairy spot. And it's going to, it's going to call on you to be able to either do an evolution that you were taught or to have um, the wherewithal to get through it. So, I mean, I love that about behind the shield, um, the logo, it, it says lives depend on us and you always preach that, man. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, we've seen it and I think what's so sad, um, you know, for, for your journey into the fire services, you, you got to see the danger of the job very early. So tell me about your, your fellow classmate, Michael Riley. Yeah. Um, so I, uh, Mike Riley was my squad leader, um, in the Academy, um, throughout the whole, the whole process. He was the primary guy. We had a, um, the first squad leader and then a guy that was behind them. They were both uh, in the in the academy. What they do is they assign um, all the teams and all the groups with uh, people that are in the military to kind of coach up uh, the guys who are civilians who are now going to become paramilitary. And um, from what I can remember about the guy, he was like uh, he uh, he was very stern. You know, he had that military background, um, and uh, oddly enough, you know, they preach in the academy, James. Look to your left, look to your right. Um, in 20 years, chances are as many as you being in this class, one of you won't be here. And um, Mike got assigned to 75 engine in the Bronx. He wanted that company. It's probably one of the ripping um, best companies in the city in terms of fire duty. And uh, he, uh, eight weeks later, was uh, on a shift. I believe it was a Sunday. And uh, him and uh, his officer at the time, um, Howie Carpluck, they ended up uh, being overcome on a, on a collapse in a taxpayer kind of a building. And Mike that day was, uh, he had the nozzle and uh, it was kind of like a 99 cent store and it was just uh, overloaded with, with stuff on the fire floor. And when they went to go fight the fire with uh, the fire load plus the amount of water that was being put on that floor, um, it ended up uh, succumbing and collapsing. And uh, unfortunately, Mike, uh, just the way he was positioned and where it ended up collapsing, he fell. But also, uh, by you know, just the way things played out, the, the boss at the time, Howard Carpluck, um, ended up falling on top of him. And, uh, you know, they tried their best. They, they sent the, all the specialty units to try to go get him. But he ended up... Uh, falling at the job he, he must have uh, died of a heart attack or just being not not being able to breathe um because of the collapse and then howie carpluck uh he was alive after they pulled him out and then he died the next morning uh from from injuries but it was it was one of those things um i only knew the guy for a short amount of time but um being exposed and getting a real it was almost like uh being punched in the mouth and just being aware of the fact that like, this is real, man. Like, this isn't a joke, you know, like when you go in any day at work, whatever the situation calls, you can't be put in a spot where, you know, you could die or, um, you know, the guys around you can die. So, I mean, it's a serious job, man, no doubt. Yeah. And it's, it's sobering for people what it happens to. I mean, I, I, we had, um, line of duty deaths while I was in school of neighboring departments. Um, you know, we had a, a famous one, 
in one of the departments I worked in, which was also a, a collapse. It was a, it wasn't a taxpayer, but it was a commercial t-shirt shop and they had storage space that probably wasn't supposed to be storage space in the roof. Um, they went in clear conditions when they walked in and then uh, it was an attic fire and all that fire load came down on top of them. And, you know, a couple of guys were killed. One guy managed to smash his way out with his bottle. But, um, if we don't listen from, you know, from those stories, a lot of times it doesn't happen to you and your crew. Um, then, you know, the, the compl- it's so easy to become complacent. So the storytelling that w- that's so famous in the fire service, you know, that's there for a reason. Like, I think we do such disservice to the fallen firefighters, the fallen cops, whatever profession we're in, if we don't learn lessons, you know, and there's, there's sometimes there's no lesson to be learned. You know, it's just a, an absolute tragedy and you would have done it the same way. But in this one, for example, we started changing the way that we pull ceiling as we make entry. You know, we started, you know, leaving people outside, you know, communication differences. Um, there's placards now that go on, on, um, buildings to let people know it's lightweight construction roof or floor. Um, but that's how, I think we, we honor the fallen, but what's so dangerous is if you set the bar low and then allow complacency, that's how you end up with these, these tragedies and not so much with the one you're talking about, but some of the ones we see when they, when they break down and analyze it, there were so many areas that could have been prevented and then it's heartbreaking. And that all boils down to from day one, as you said, letting candidates know this is the job and then through the academy, beating the shit out of us so that we are held to the highest standard and then maintaining that training all the way through our our career so we don't get complacent. What, uh, James, I would, I'd love to hear more about that story. You, you made mention of the guy using his bottle. Did he did he run out of air and he came off air or he, he ended up unfoiling his pack and then using it? So the ceiling collapsed. Um, from what I understand, they, they did a great video on it. Um, I think... One of the guys actually passed away since, and it was from, from a medical condition, but the, it was the engineer that was in there, um, and he still had his bottle on his pack. There was a side door that was padlocked, chained and padlocked, and he basically turned his back to it and was able to, to, to smash his way out because when the ceiling fell down, obviously it, it flashed and, you know, the, the conditions were, were basically burning him to death. So he was actually able to, to use his ba- pack to ram his way out of the side door because it wouldn't open because of the uh, the chain but the other two perished that's wild man yeah so horrendous um so kind of walk me through your experience then as as a new firefighter I mean, aside from that tragedy and then i want to get to to how you found crossfit um, um so I, I graduate the academy in, in the summertime and and uh i got stationed um you know, lucky enough, in hindsight, I ended up getting a single engine on the Upper West Side. I've been there ever, ever since, and um, I was I was new on the job. I didn't have any idea of what to expect at the firehouse. I had no family prior in it. Um, didn't know any, like, real friends in it. Everybody that I knew, they were kind of going through the same thing, being a probie. But uh, the best thing that I knew that I could do uh, was, you know, try to lean on people in front of me and uh, the senior guys who – you know, took the time out to speak to me who weren't, you know, in, in a positive way, who weren't just giving me shit, go get a mop, um, go do this, go do that. But I try to find people that, uh, you know, I could talk to about the job and just kind of um, be a sponge and, and soak up what I could. Um, 
being in the academy and learning stuff, James, as you know, and then going into the field and and uh, seeing things, how they truly play out is a complete difference, you know. And I think um, I try to take the, the stance of uh, do the best that I could. I mean, um, I was learning from my mistakes more than I was uh, from my successes. But the more I learned from my mistakes being a probie and then as I was a Johnny firefighter and um, I ended up earning my respect going to different jobs and I, uh, I ended up being a guy my first couple uh, years on the job. I ended up getting a lot of basement jobs, which are um, really, really tough to fight. But, uh, you know, guys started to see I knew the job I could be relied on and then uh, just slowly started moving up the food chain that way. That was the approach I took. Beautiful. Well, then, when did you find CrossFit? Because you mentioned that you were bodybuilding before. Then you did the uh, human performance in college. So what was your first experience with that? Two two guys actually uh, exposed me uh, to CrossFit. Um, I was an assistant uh, intern, uh, strength conditioning coach at Fordham University um, in the Bronx for the football team. And the assistant strength and conditioning coach um, at the time was this guy named Kelly Shaver. He's currently the uh, head strength and conditioning coach of Iona. Um, and he was he was very much involved um, on the low. He was, you know, he was doing CrossFit. A good buddy of his was uh, Dave Lipson. I don't know if you know Dave Lipson. He's I remember the, him. Yeah. Yeah. yeah his, uh, he's the uh, husband of Camille LeBlanc Bazinet. But uh, he would talk about it every now and again. Because uh, in the office where the strength and conditioning facility was located, you know, guys would just go over different theories of how to, you know, just get the football player ready um, based on what season they were in. So he started talking about it. And then at the same time, I was involved helping out a school in the Bronx called Riverdale Country School, their football team. And uh, I went away to summer camp and this this guy named Nick, Nick Carbone, who now is the... Uh, the head baseball coach for George Washington High School in Washington Heights, he wouldn't stop talking about CrossFit. Like, <laughs> guy, guy wouldn't stop talking about it. One of those people that once you start getting hooked on it, what it's doing for your body, you know, can't stop talking about it. He he bring rings to football camp, was doing workouts, and um, I was like, man, there's got to be something to this because this is getting brought up and being put in my visual. And what I ended up doing was. I asked Kelly to give me a workout when I was at uh, Fordham and he gave me Fran and that was my first real crack at, <laughs> at CrossFit and like everything else, man, I wasn't ready for it. I got buried and I couldn't believe what, what it just had happened. Cause it, um, you know, in hindsight, if you look at Fran, it's only 90 reps, but paired together, if you try to go fast, it's a whole different story. So once that happened to me, I was kind of like, I was sold by what had happened by me getting punished. And then um, I, I was all the way in. And then also the fact, James, like, you know, and I'm sure like it helped you. Um, Rich was doing it. Sam Briggs, Matt Chan, Bill Grunler, a lot of those people were, were firemen and um, had the same career as I did. So I was like, there's got to be something to it. And then Rich went on his run and I was all in, man. Yeah, but it's funny because you, I just caught what you said and it was exactly what I think a lot of people in our professions think like, that was awful. How do I do it again? <laughs> you know? Most people be like, that's awful. I'm never doing that again. But, but it, I think it, it, to me, it was like that 
took me to such a shitty place that I need to visit more often because if I'm wearing gear in a fire, that's a very safe way of mimicking a kind of worst day scenario. Completely. It, um, I, I think, I think the methodology of CrossFit and what, what um, Coach Glassman created, um, I know being a buff of main site um, way, way back when, there was, um, I think he must have been catering to um, first responders and the military um, because it, the, the, the dose that you get from those workouts, um, it applies a lot to what you'll see um, based on your, your daily activities, uh, especially with bunker gear or, or being at a job. I mean, um, if you can sustain yourself um, during a workout and, and see it through, then it, you'll have successes. It'll, it'll carry over. There's a lot of carryover if you do those kind, that kind of training to um, being ready at work. I mean, I, I know you've got, to, you've got to have many instances, James, as well, being a fireman where you start to see that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I wrote about, I think I, I touched on it in the book, but um, I remember one specific event. We went on a, we thought it was a car fire. And I can see it now. I think we were even on the road when we got banged out. Um, and when we got there, it was a car fire, along with another five cars on fire in carport with a wooden apartment, um, you know, complex attached to it built above it. So it ended up being, you know, Car, uh, car fire mentality to oh shit this is a you know entire apartment complex structure fire but i was on the ground floor me and another firefighter we were knocking down all these cars um because obviously that was you know ultimately the, the the source of the fire and i remember being very stubborn i think some of the the uh petrol tanks that had ruptured so we we're fighting that too and then i went upstairs um and some of my you know fellow firefighters have been fighting the the fire that was actually in the structure and I remember walking in. This isn't like a yay me. This is a yay my training. Um, they were they were just spent. I mean, they they were trying to breach the floor because they remember there was a bathroom and there was fire under the floor, and they just couldn't they couldn't get through the the floor. They were just so exhausted. And so you know, I, I gave them a tap on the back and said, "I'm good." You know, I got this. And then remember breaking like the toilet first to get access to the hole, and then and then break from there and, and put it out. And it wasn't like, oh, wow, I'm such a great firefighter. Quite the opposite. It was like, ah, so this is the difference when you apply this type of strength and conditioning um, to the fire ground. So that was a huge, like, giant check mark for me. Like, okay, this stuff works because they were on scene, um, you know, later than I was. And yet they were spent before I was. And again, it's no knock on them on the work they did, but it just showed me that the, the the muscular endurance that you get from CrossFit absolutely applies to the tactical athlete. Yeah, absolutely. The um, I, when I heard, when I hear you speak just now, what you were talking about, I mean, I always think about the uh, the equation and the the variance um, of different workouts constantly being different and different time domains. Um, I mean, I give all the credit to CrossFit and the methodology for that because, I mean, you, you saw it yourself. You were doing it at the time, and it had some, some transfer over. Um, completely, is he, he, he should get more credit, uh, Coach Glassman, because, you know, what he created, uh, a lot of us have fell in love with. Now, what about you? When, when were some aha moments for you on the fire ground? Um. What I, for me, what I started to notice was uh, I was having better, um, better usage of my, my bottle. 
just uh, being able to sustain it more. And like you, you made mention before, um, I've had I've had a couple instances where, um, you know, I had to carry maybe two roll ups or, you know, make a climb with my crew. You know, some of my crew is hanging back. They're not with me on the climb, you know, because those guys obviously weren't weren't training like I was or um, they weren't having the uh, comfortability with being uncomfortable, which I think uh, that's that's the part where, where like if you do these kind of workouts, that's what it provides. But uh, mainly what I started to see was that I was having a better endurance level. But with that, I was able to, to have more of a, a longer lasting use of my bottle. So I um, being being in. Um, impressed by what that was offering me being at work and then also with the the, the way I was starting to feel um, with my physical and how I, I you know I felt naked and all the good stuff that comes with it I was I was all in man yeah well I think another thing I just talked to uh, Brian McKenzie who's uh, you know very famous breath guru um, and uh, one thing that's rarely discussed especially in the fire service is breath is efficiency of breathing and now of course there's a cardiovascular element to that but there's also the literal you know control of your breath and one of the tools that i love from crossfit is the emom because you basically the goal is roughly 30 seconds of work 30 seconds of rest and if you focus on that 30 seconds to deregulate as much as you can bring your heart rate down bring your breathing down bring your actual kind of uh, um, you know sympathetic nervous system down it's amazing how close to zero you can get yourself at the end of that second 30 seconds and it's so pertinent for us because you and I go you know 10 stories with all our gear and then let's say now you know you're getting set to to breach well, I get a few seconds to, to you know, to breathe, or you know, maybe we do make entry and we just take a moment and get our heart rate down before we, you know, move through and do whatever we're going to do. So that undulation, you know, you get the fram, which is basically nonstop, but the emoms and some of those other ones, you know, when there's that built-in rest, using that to breathe and bring everything down, I think is absolutely essential when the only air on planet Earth in IDLH situation is hanging on your on your shoulders. Yeah, I mean, right there, James. I mean, you weren't exposed to imams until you found CrossFit. I bet. No, absolutely not. That that's a uh, that's a perfect theory um, in terms of uh, how you would apply um, a style of training to transferring over to, like you said, you know, doing a climb and then and then really being able to go to work. You know, you went to work a little bit, um, getting to where you needed to go. Um, and then being able to attack it at the fire floor level. I, uh, I, I made a post on my uh, Barbell Club Instagram about something that you had said, James. Um, find the tallest building <laughs> in your first two area. And that's what you need to be able to climb. I mean, I still remember some of the stuff you said on this podcast. That's, uh, those are golden nuggets, man. My EMOM is a golden nugget, man. Absolutely. And again, these, I'm just, you know, passing on information that I learned from people far smarter than me. <laughs> so, um, so what about the comp competition size? You mentioned the barbell club, but I want to get to that next. So how did you go from CrossFit athlete as far as, you know, just using it for the fire service to taking it one step further and wanting to compete in CrossFit? Yeah. Yeah. Great question, man. Um, so, you know, I was, uh, I'm in, I'm in the job and I'm, I'm working out and I'm doing CrossFit, but a, a part of me, like everybody else, you're trying to find uh, something to 
you know, keep you going and get you going to the gym or some quote unquote to train for. So I was, uh, I was doing a couple Spartan races and I was actually doing pretty well. I was doing like stadium tours just cause I like baseball. I was into that, but, um, something that the fire service and the police service offers is that they have, um, the world police fire games and CrossFit was first honored as a sport. Um, and the 2015 uh, World Police Fire Games, and it was going to be held in, in Virginia. So that kind of like uh, gave me an avenue um, to be competitive in the sport using my profession. Um, there's two competitions that they offer. Uh, one's national, the U.S. Police Fire Championships, but uh, internationally is the World Police Fire Games. So I've competed um, at the 2015 Games in uh, Virginia, the 2017 games in LA and the 2019 games in China. And then, uh, I, uh, I was lucky enough that, um, in 2019, I got the silver medal in my age group, 35 to 39 in CrossFit. That's amazing. Now talk to me about the, uh, the formation of FDNY Barbell Club. Well, it kind of, it, it kind of started from, from there. Um, James, I was, I was starting to notice in 2015 when I went out to Virginia, there were so many people, so many cops and firemen and men and women that were doing the sport um, and competing, whether they be in their local comp or they're coming out to compete every couple of years um, at this event. So it kind of started to spur in my mind. Like, uh, you know, what would be the possibility of having a team? So what I ended up thinking was um, I shot a general email um, to CrossFit um, with the idea in mind that the FDNY and the NYPD, they have these uh, these sports that they go against each other in, you know, whether it be boxing, baseball, football, soccer, a slew of sports where we both compete in. And I started to think, man, what, what if there was a CrossFit Games with FDNY versus NYPD? And I went on main site and I went to just the general tab, the email. And I shot an email out explaining my idea and what I thought it could, you know, what it could be. And CrossFit got back to me. And when they got back to me, they got back to me with this guy named uh, John McLaughlin. He's known as J-Mac. He works on the games team. Um, alongside uh, Dave Castro and Boz, and he's also a fire chief in Florida. Um, and he got back to me, you know, he said he loved the idea, and we started to get the steps going to create a CrossFit competition, um, FDNY versus NYPD. NYPD has a CrossFit team of their own. Um, so we started to build on that for a little bit, but... It didn't, it didn't end up coming to fruition and didn't end up working out. Um, NYPD has some prior obligations and we weren't able to see it through. Um, but what ended up sparking in my mind was the idea that like, hey man, if that didn't work out, let's just, um, let's just continue our own way and you know keep a, a CrossFit team on our side. So I named it the FDNY Barbell Club with, with the idea in mind that, you know, if not everybody was involved in CrossFit, some people, if they were Olympic lifters or if people were power lifters, you know, they could still be involved with our club. But that's that's the story kind of um, 
in a condensed version. That's how it ended up coming to fruition. Beautiful. Well, when we recorded the first time, you were going to do a competition with PD on September 18th. Obviously, COVID has, uh, has, has stuck a, you know, a, um, a wedge in that, as it were. So talk to me about what the competition is that you, you know, that you're building, you know, who's going to be participating and then when the kind of potential date of that will be now. Yeah. So, um, this past September, we were supposed to, or earlier this month, we were going to get rolling out the, uh, first responder trials, but, uh, you know, um, alongside with us and other competitions like Flex on the Beach, there just wasn't enough um, people getting involved in it. I don't know if COVID's had an effect on it or just um, what's going on. Um, but we're hoping to have talks with the uh, NYPD coming up um, in October. But the idea is um, with the first responder trials, what we want to do is you want to highlight first responders um, anywhere in the Northeast. <clears throat> that can compete in a competition um, just kind of highlighting um, our fitness. And um, the Barbell Club is, uh, you know, seeking to create that. Um, hopefully NYPD CrossFit is going to be on board and when it rolls out in the spring. But the whole premise of it, James, is, uh, you know, to get departments uh, more exposed and more um, in tune with the line that um, if you do CrossFit or if you do um, uh, variances of those kinds of workout, it'll help you, um, in the fire floor. And what we've done in order to kind of push it forward and solidify it, um, the Barbell Club has paired up with a, a company called Northwell Health, um, group, uh, it's a hospital group in, uh, based out in Long Island. Um, they have hospitals in uh, Manhattan and Queens. They've come on as a title sponsor and their sponsorship is going to help us, you know, um, get more exposure uh, and help the team out and, and get better, uh, better prize pools and packages of, uh, of gear and fitness equipment so that whoever wins, they can take it back to their respective stations, um, whether they be paramedics or firemen or cops. And, you know, they can kind of keep that going. So we've, we've been trying to, you know, stay with the mission statement that, you know, the message is, you know, keep, keep training you know, like we said, like we were mentioning before, these kind of workouts are going to help you uh, wherever you are in your career. Now, flipping that around the other way, we talked about how CrossFit has helped you and, and myself, you know, as far as our career. You were also a member of the safety team at the CrossFit Games and you got to use your rescue skills that way. So so talk to me about, you know, what that team is and, you know, what your experiences has been. And then, and then you know, tell me the story of that rescue. Man, I got so bringing up the man again, I could, I could never thank him enough. J-Mac, um, at the time, I had been to the CrossFit Games in 2018 and I went alone. I just always had, uh, you know, I wanted to check that off the bucket list and um, I got to see the games live. And then when I started to, uh, you know, develop my friendship with J-Mac when the uh, competition had fell through, um, it was in the late spring of 2019, the Barbell Club. Um, just got approved by our commissioner, and I asked uh, J Mac if 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 he could put in a word and um, possibly get me on the games medical team. My first uh, exposure to the the CrossFit Games medical team was in 2019, and uh, basically, what the team is comprised of, a lot of people don't know, is uh, it's 
at the games is pretty much a moving hospital that's that's there. Um, they check all the boxes. They have orthopedic surgeons, um, the highest the highest medical professionals that would be in a hospital are there. Um, and then what they do is they have nurses and uh, primarily paramedics and firemen that work the floor um, at the games. And then uh, the leads uh, at the higher level are doctors and orthopedics. Um, some of them will actually be on site on the floor, um, but for the most part, they're in their staging areas. And, um, you know, at the games, there's a quick reaction vehicle, um, whether it be on the water or whether it be um, on site, um, you know, with a cart, just in case somebody goes down based on what the workout calls for. But uh, this past year at the 2021 games, um, there was a water event, and uh, what they did was uh, they were going to have the age groups, and they started off with the adaptive athletes. Um, they were going to have different heats that went out, and at the time, I was on post in a quick reaction vehicle um, with, uh, with Madison PD, and I was paired up with a paramedic by the name of Trisha Fleming, who's a paramedic out in Oklahoma, and um, we had two quick reaction vehicles and we had three people out on kayaks, um, that were working the event. So for the age groups in particular, the 65 plus the workout was, uh, swim 300 meters in total, but, uh, 150 meters out and then 150 meters back. And one of the athletes, he's actually, uh, the oldest athlete at the games, he, um, went out with his heat and he started off on a crawl, a front stroke. And, uh, you know, he started to look pretty tired. I mean, there was a lot of bodies in the water, but you know, you can see, um, somebody's stroke rate just the way they're swimming, um, in the water. So this guy, he, he was pretty, uh, he was pretty, pretty tired of with the workout. He got to the halfway point, which was the buoy. And, um, I think he changed strokes and he went to his backstroke and then he just started to take on water. Um, just started to look disoriented. Um, wasn't on a crawl, wasn't on a backstroke, um, swimming proficiently. And then he yelled out help. And when that happened, based on uh, where we were on the boat, I mean, Trisha flew out immediately and she actually had a vest on, on her person. So she jumped in the water and on demand, uh, the way those, uh, those life vests work when they take on a certain amount of water, they activate. So Trish, uh, her, her life vest activated when she got in the water and what she ended up doing was, uh, she ended up swimming out to him with her life vest on, but this guy now is in full panic and he just wants to grab her. So what she ended up doing was she actually took off her vest, let them know that this actually floats and it's a device that you can hold on to. And as that's happening, I was issued a, like a tether, almost like a rope with a safety device on the end. Um, and ended up throwing it out. Um, Trisha calmed him down and, um, then I, I pulled them both in and then, uh, he got pulled from the workout. But the, this year at the games, it was my first year, it was first year, first time working the water event. We actually had some um, I don't know if it was just because of the staggeredness of uh, the heats, but a lot of athletes were having trouble. Um, there was a couple guys I actually had to jump in for. Um, the kayaks were being uh, 
you know, muddled with all athletes, you know, just needing a break. But um, the water event, it punished people this year. Yeah, I can imagine. And that was in a lake, wasn't it? As opposed to the ocean where it used to be, which is even yeah. more dangerous. <laughs> yeah, out in Madison, out in Madison, it's, uh, they, they use a lake. Um, and in, in Carson, in California, they were swimming in the ocean. But yeah, like you said, James, it's a whole different animal. Um, swimming in open water in general, but if you were to be in the ocean, you got to deal with currents. It could be, uh, it could be challenging. Hats off to to Dave and and J Mac and Boz and and Chuck, all those guys. I mean, you know, they 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 they, they comprise the best team um, with the games medical team. Um, a lot of those guys working that day, we we went to work. I mean, me and Trish got the the glory of it with the article, but. Um, Pee Wee, Sasha Gomez, um, a lot of those, a lot of those people on staff, Owen, Owen Baluch. I mean, everybody was all hands on deck. It was, it was, uh, it was challenging this year. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, well, it's, it's great to hear though. I mean, it really is, like I said, with the, you know, the profession going the opposite way and paying back into the CrossFit community. Um, so I'd love to transition to some closing questions. So the first one I love to ask, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. Um, yeah. Um, if there's a book that I suggest that I love and I tell everybody about it's uh, Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. Um, it's considered a success book, but, um, just a lot of the ideas and the premise of the book, I mean, it's applicable um, to all aspects of life. And I suggested that anyone, if, if they wanted a quick read, it's an easy read. And like I mentioned before, it's one of the aforementioned books on, on success. Brilliant. What about a, a, a movie and or a documentary you love? I recently, it just, <laughs> it solidified my love for them. Is I don't know. Do you watch Thirty for Thirty, James? Um, yeah, I've seen some of them. Yeah, I think uh, there was a great one I did on Bruce Lee not too long ago. Yeah, yeah, that was during COVID. Actually, that yeah. was amazing. But uh, I, they just did one on the Mets most recently, and um, the Thirty for Thirties, man. I, it's amazing how much, um, how how good they are, and how much discussion comes from them. Like after you watch, if you're around a group of people, um, sometimes at work, we're able to find time to watch it and just. Uh, 30 for 30 hats off to those guys all those seasons they're just remarkable stories man yeah very well made as well yeah very well made the one on the jordan most recently during covid that 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 actually kept me going during covid oh <laughs> really yeah the 10 part series that they dropped was every you was just plugged in you had nothing else to do you were just looking forward to them yeah yeah the one i forget the name now the, the last dance did you watch that the documentary on him yeah, 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 that's the one with Jordan. The oh, that, that's the yeah. same one? Okay, yeah, no, that was incredible. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, that was incredible, yeah. Beautiful. All right, Um. then the next question, is there a person to, you would recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? Yes, absolutely. I, my, uh, I would highly suggest that you reach out to uh, uh, Dr. Sean Rocket. He's, uh, he's an orthopedic surgeon in New England and Boston. And uh, he's just an awesome guy to talk to. He has a he has a real cool style style about him. He's a he's a Harvard grad, um, but just just an awesome person. And some of the stuff that uh, that he's been exposed to at the games and um, how he's helped athletes is it's amazing. Um, 
um, from being on the floor and, and, and really just uh, being able to save people's seasons or uh, um, save them from further injury. Now, was that I saw a doctor posted a picture of them wearing your shirt and you reposted it. Was that him? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I started following him. So that um, actually that actually happened this morning. Oddly enough, that's him, Doc Rocket. Beautiful. Doc Rocket, they call him. But uh, James, you'll you'll have so much to talk about him. He's a brilliant man and uh, very very easy going as well. Brilliant. Yeah. I will make make sure we make that happen then. Um, all right. Well, then the last question before we make sure people know where to find you in the Barbell Club. What do you do to decompress? Man, my. Uh, my my go-to, absolute go-to to decompress is uh, I try to travel as much as I can. And uh, the reason why is I find that the, the fast pace and the, the tempo of uh, the work environment that we're in, working in the city and just the breath of a day and uh, going somewhere else and, and being able to truly enjoy time and seeing the world and um, different different aspects of how people live and and culture to me um, is, is truly infectious, and, and it allows me to really, really get my stress levels down. I look, I, I look forward to traveling um, all the time, especially with my fiance. So, where are some of the places you've loved the most so far? Man, most recently, I, uh, this summer we went on a trip, and um, uh, she's from Ireland. So uh, I've been to Ireland many times, but we went to the Amalfi Coast in Italy. Um, and you know, so many times you've seen photos of it, but to be there and, um, to see that, that part of Sorrento and to go to Capri, um, just to, to see how people live, um, like that part of Italy is pretty much built on a mountain and it's amazing that they're able to, you know, to have residentials and, and businesses based on just the geographic of where they are, um, but I've been uh, a lot of places in Europe, uh, all over the States, but I love to travel, James. I think it's the best thing that you can do is to get outside of your environment and then go somewhere else and just, you know, uh, reflect and, and just recharge your battery, man. Now, one thing that, that I've, you know, tried to bring onto this podcast is, you know, the notion that we are in an incredible country, but there are places overseas that are doing some things better than we are. And it's not a competition. They're just doing it better. And it's something that we could, we could bring here. We could mirror, you know, whether it's, you know, I've talked about education in Finland. I've talked about prisons in Norway and drug policy in, in, in Portugal. Um, are there any things that you've seen in your travels so far in another country that you think would work so well back here in the U.S.? Yeah, I was just talking about that a couple of weeks ago when I, with somebody about my travels. I, I noticed that like uh, in America, the the goal in mind, I, I feel like, is to make money and, you know, to work hard to make money so that, um, you know, you can attain things. But uh, a lot of other places in terms of how they adopt their way of life and you know, taking a break during the day, whether it be a siesta or like kind of slowing it down a little bit. It's, I mean, it's something that we should take a look at um, in everyday life. Or sometimes I even feel like that at work. Like maybe they should find a way to like to build in more time so that we could sleep, or um, kind of like you know take a, take a break from all from it all, or, or or figure out how many hours a week we're working, but. I think, um, in general, from my travels, uh, 
the way of life and, and what people um, really value is uh, sometimes it's a lot different from American values. And um, I, I, wish, I wish we adopted more of the, those thoughts, but it's, it's going to be hard. But I don't know if I'm making sense. But No, you are completely. I was actually talking to a friend this morning about that. You know, we are financially one of the most affluent countries on the planet. And our quality of life, you know, as far as materialism, as far as comfort, is probably one of the highest on the planet. Yet I feel that we're one of the most unhappy cultures on the planet too. And I think that, like you said, we have found ourselves chasing the mighty dollar, chasing, you know, the, the materialism element, and we lose some of that gratitude, some of that, you know, wonder of this planet that we're on, you know, especially in New York. I mean, you know, there's not much nature left in in the concrete jungle that is Manhattan, for example, apart from Central Park. So, you know, I think that's what I've seen with my travels too. You see people with so much less that seems so content, so so grateful for what they've got. And if we could find that as a society, still with, you know, the amazing places that we found ourselves financially and everything, you know, we'd be would be incredible but you know sadly that that consumerism can also bring with it a lot of misery yeah absolutely james you hit it on the head man i i was just in my car a couple days ago and i got home and i was telling uh Gigi, i was like man everybody's so angry you know like everybody like has has to be somewhere they're super aggressive on the roads or like there's no nobody's really slowing down to like enjoy the weather. You know, it being like mid 70s, you know, low 80s going for a stroll or a walk. You know, maybe some people are doing that with their dogs. But for the most part, people are on the go and they're like real chippy. And I don't know, man, it beats you up and it wears on you. And um, maybe maybe some way or somehow that's the stuff the media should be talking about, like ways to feel better by doing, you know, this, this, and this, but it's bad, man. When, especially when you go somewhere that's like slow, easy going, and then you come back here to New York, man, the rustle and bustle. And it's like, oh, get me out of here, man. I can't wait to, to, to get out and go somewhere else as soon as possible. <laughs> yeah, no, and I, and I, like I said, I used to live in London, so I know, I know what you mean, you know, and I, I didn't live in, in New York, but I used to visit a lot. My, my, my favorite comedian, one of my favorite comedians, James, is from London. His name's Mike Gunn. Mike Gunn? Yeah, G-U-N-N, man. You got to hear this guy talk, man. I'm looking for new comedians. He's so funny. If you want a good laugh, look that guy up. Brilliant. Yeah, that's one of the things people say, do you miss England? I miss I miss English stand-up comedians is one of the big things. The, the, you know, the, I wouldn't say intelligent because that sounds patronizing to everyone that's not English, but it's, it's a different kind of... Um, wit and sarcasm that you know it's i mean i've i've made i remember when i first came to america i'd make jokes and people thought i was serious like you know because it's kind of deadpan <laughs> you know but i had to explain that was actually oh, never mind <laughs> but um but yeah but that i love i love good british comedy i think it's incredible oh so you'll love him and that'll be that'll be a good listen beautiful all right well yeah. then for everyone listening um if they're in fdny you know how do they find the barbell club to actually join and for everyone else if they want to learn more if they want to buy a shirt um where are the places um, for them to find you online so there's two places you can find the barbell club uh one is the website it's uh www.fdnybarbellclub.com which is kind of like a general page 
Um, on the link, it says fittest of the bravest uh, tees. And you can click that link and uh, purchase uh, a shirt on the storefront here. And then if you want to find a lot of the stuff that we've been doing since our infancy in, uh, in May of 2019 is uh, the Instagram handle, which is at, uh, at FDNY Barbell Club. And um, you can see a lot of the cool stuff of uh, our athletes and uh, our board on there. Um, and if and if anybody wants to get directly in contact with me, mostly would be at the, my Instagram handle, which is uh, WorldfireRick. Beautiful. Well, Rick, I want to say thank you. Um, yeah, for people listening, we we did an interview before. There were a couple of elements, the date of the previous uh, competition, my own um, mental uh, health challenges, I guess we'd say. I found myself in a very weird place. So I wanted to do this interview justice. So we, so we redid it again. But I'm so glad that we did. It's been a great conversation. We hit some areas that we didn't hit last time. So I want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. And thank you, James. I appreciate uh, the message that you have. I love your podcast. I've loved your book. And again, thank you for having me, man.